Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. How does anxiety really create this disconnection, this isolation in a marriage? Is that if you have the belief, and if you were taught, and a lot of people are taught this, if we don't talk about it, then it's not true. Or if we don't talk about it, it's not real. Right? So we can just ignore this thing and it'll go away. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and other big feelings. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a fluster clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way, and I'll even tell you what to say. Lynn, this week's Atlantic has an article on stopping intensive parenting, and I was Mm -hmm. like, ooh, this sounds so good. (laughs) (laughs) And then I read it and it had some interesting points. I shared it with you, but I don't know. What was your take on that article? Okay, so that's me banging my head against the wall. (laughs) It's like something's wrong with your mic. (laughs) I mean, I think the more we talk about it, the better. It was funny. Like we're now calling it intensive parenting and they even make reference. Like we used to call it helicopter parenting and bulldozy parenting. So now we're calling it intensive parenting. Can we just stop naming it and stop doing it? Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) And again, like we should be talking about it. People keep trying to understand it. And I keep saying, it's not that hard to understand, right? It's the same with anxiety. People are always like, we need to figure this out. And I keep saying like, we don't, we, we've got it. We got it. So a few things. There is a reference to good enough parenting, which was a concept that I learned about in graduate school, but was around long before that by, by um, Winnicott's good enough parenting. And that really you need to focus on the basics. You need to focus on love and attachment and being there for your kids and everything else that happens is sort of icing on the loving parenting cake, right? That's an old concept that's been around for a long time. In contrast to that, this intensive parenting thing is that you've got to curate your children's lives to make sure that everything goes perfectly, that they're never bored, that they have enough activities. I talk a lot about the concept of resume building so that they can get into the best school. Because you don't support that. The way you said that, it made it sound like... And I really believe in resume building. I don't believe in resume building. I mean, because it's really about how can we create a child that then will move into the best college, the best job, the best team, the best activity. And that is really, really destructive. And what was interesting in this article is that this research has been around for a long time that we know what the factors are that lead to increased anxiety in kids. They did a poll which said that, I forget, was it 70, 74% of parents believe in this type of parenting or, or see it as valuable. So clearly, as much as the anxiety people and the child development people are saying like, look, this is not helping our kids at all, it still is something that parents feel really 
committed to and I think really afraid to give up. Like it's just like, oh, I, what if I what if I, I I should just do more because if I do less, that's terrible. I think there's social pressure. I think that there's an overwhelming sense in parenting that you're walking a tightrope and that you better do everything or you're going to screw it up. That is really ingrained right now. You have a line, there's a big sweet spot in parenting mm-hmm. and it's walking across the Brooklyn Bridge, not a tightrope. Right. But I finished reading that and still thinking there is a huge cultural drive for this. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a lot. How do we get the cultural message of parenting to change so that we have better mental health outcomes for our kids. And I wonder also with that, you know, we've talked about the Japanese reality show on Netflix, yeah, yeah. Old Enough. Uh-huh. Maybe there is a tipping point where mm-hmm. we see that, oh, a two-year-old could go to the grocery store for <laughs> me and cross the street if I gave them the room. I have this image in my head of like this bus full of toddlers, like picking up all the toddlers and bringing them to the grocery store, right? Like, it, like, <laughs> hey, look, we're gonna we're gonna sign you up for toddler shopping, right? Oh my, <laughs> my life is gonna be so. Oh my, if only my toddler could do the grocery shopping, I would get so much more done, right? It would just free up my day. Yeah, that's funny. But yeah, when are we at a point where? that 73% goes down to 23%. Mm-hmm. And an interesting thing, when we talk about parents and their own anxiety and feeling like there's not enough time, a lot of parents who are doing this, this intensive parenting, feel really anxious and really stressed out about all the things that they have to do in their lives too. And I think there's this sense that there's an obligation. There was one line in the article that said, parents, if your child is bored, what should you do? And it was... Do you let them say, well, go find something to do? Or do you then feel like you're obligated to create an activity, to participate in activity, to make sure that you've got them signed up for an activity? And more parents said, I've got to step in and deal with my child's boredom. A lot of parents are like, oh my God, I I don't have enough time to make sure that my kid's homework is done. I don't want to do their homework with them. I don't want to play with them all the time. But still, this obligation to do it. It's this real conflict that goes on. I want to thank you. There was that sentence that said something about parents when further optimization causes more harm than good. Mm. And that sentence really jumped out at me because in my professional world, I am very much an optimizer in how I approach things. Mm -hmm. But I will say because of being your Mm sister-in-law, you know, my kids are not overscheduled. Yeah. When I read that, for some reason, I had this split life memory of, wow, if Lynn wasn't my sister-in-law, how much would I be doing being kind of sucked into the culture and having my kids really scheduled with all of these different things. So anyway, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I will thank Mary. Mary was one of my children's first teachers. She ran the little Montessori they went to in preschool. And then my boys went to this little school with Bill and Judy. And I remember Judy saying to me, and these people, like they were born to be teachers of young children. But I remember after school, first, second, third grade, I didn't have anything scheduled for my boys. So they didn't have any activities. Like, And Judy said to me one day after school, I really appreciate that at the end of the school day, you are not rushing your children off to another event because these little brains and bodies are tired now. She said that to me. And I was like, oh, and it was such validation 
of her recognizing they just were in school from eight to three and they were six and seven and eight and they didn't need to go to another activity as kids were sort of changing their clothes in the bathroom to get into the carpool. It was just so important for me to hear that. So you can thank me and I will thank Mary and Judy and Bill. Maybe that's what parents don't get right now. They don't get that validation that it's okay to not schedule. What you do get is, oh, you didn't sign your child up for that? Oh, well, well, my child is doing 20 hours of this activity. Oh, oh, it, it, there is a real disapproval. Like, oh, oh, you're not participating in that? And I think that's what makes it so hard for parents because we have so much doubt anyway. And this is where the self-awareness of our own anxiety has such a key point of our families and how we parent. But there's something else I want to talk about today, too, that's I've been really thinking about. Okay. When I talk about the podcast with men, mm -hmm. I often get a response where men feel like family and anxiety has nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are going to be dads who absolutely are in the thick of this because they are working on a generalized anxiety diagnosis within the family. But that's not the majority of families. Mm -hmm. These men that I talk to and I explain what you do and what we talk about, and they just say like, well, what's the connection to me? I want to address that because <laughs> I'm kind of tired of being a little blue in the face explaining, no, this has everything to do with you too. Yeah. It's not women's work. This is not women's work. And right. I think that what we should do, we've done episodes in the past where we've talked about men who have depression. We've also talked about another episode about how to co-parent more harmoniously mm -hmm. and work on these things. But I think we really should talk today especially for our listeners who've been listening to us for a long time now. Let's have a great discussion about all the ways that anxiety impacts a marriage. Yeah. Let's first get this out of the way because it is a stereotype and like many stereotypes, it isn't accurate. Why don't you talk about gender stereotypes associated with anxiety? Mm -hmm. When people think about anxiety... And I remember talking about this when we were talking about the dads and depression and dads and anxiety episode two, is that it's really looked at as sort of this nervous, hysterical, flighty, like, oh my God, I'm so anxious. Like it really is looked at this thing of weakness and you're all over the place. Your emotions are out of control. Like, oh, you just can't deal. You're just you're freaking scattered out. and fearful and freaking out. Yeah. And you're hysterical and oh my God, oh my God. Like all of that sort of stereotypical chicken with their head cut off, like running around, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. That's how many people think about and talk about anxiety. And I think then the stereotypical male way that we think about it, if they will look at it as anxiety, it's about rigidity and control. Like things have to be a certain way. I think a lot of times people don't even see that as anxiety as we've talked about a lot, but it's a lot about the airport dad, right? We've talked about airport dad. We have to get to the airport four hours early and they get bossy. So women get like, ah, and men get like bossy and controlling. That's the gender stereotype, I think. Right. And people don't even understand that the bossy controlling is actually stemming from anxiety. Right. Mm -hmm. Let's just remind new listeners, anxiety is the state of being uncomfortable with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So you could be fretting about the future because you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know what to do. 
or you could be fretting about the future. So you are going to make sure you know what happens. Yeah, because it's always about trying to create certainty and trying to get rid of discomfort. And we do that by trying to control things. And so we can do it by trying to control either ourselves or oftentimes other people. And we also can do it by avoiding. And I think when we're talking about relationships, right, if you're in a relationship with someone who's really anxious, their avoidance impacts you. Yeah, but you don't even have to be anxious in a marriage to have things that are uncomfortable that you want to avoid, right? Every marriage has that. Yeah, you don't have to have an anxiety disorder to want to avoid uncomfortable things and to want to not address things and to sort of figure out how to work around things so that you don't have to have those discussions. You don't have to address what's going on in a relationship. For sure. Yeah. When I think of the anxiety audit course that we did, it's also the topic of your new book. You unpack all of these very common ways that people have anxiety present. Mm -hmm. I think that it would be kind of fun to revisit a lot of these and talk about how they show up in marriages to give like that very concrete example. The thing that I love talking about actually is how people don't understand that these are patterns of anxiety and how it shows up and how it disguises itself, how it masquerades itself. Isolation and going inside and shutting down that inner isolation, that is a huge one. And that's a huge one in marriages. Remember, as I say all the time, anxiety and depression are both internalizing disorders. So you do the work inside yourself. So when people are anxious about something, if people are nervous about something, if people are worrying about something, if you are an inner isolator in a marriage, in a relationship, you don't talk about it. You don't say like, hey, I'm feeling this way and we got to work it through or I'm anxious about this. You just go inside and it's you and you having a conversation, telling a story. Remember with Camilla and Princess Diana and Prince Charles, how they talked about there were three people in the marriage, remember? Yes. Well, with anxiety, if you are an inner isolator, anxiety is like your Camilla Parker Bowles, if I may be so bold to say. Like you are inside having a relationship with your anxiety and not including your partner in the conversations, in the feelings, in the conclusions that you're coming to. You're just inside cutting yourself off. I wonder how many people could say the male partner in my relationship hates talking about money, hates talking about if they're uncomfortable about something that happens at work. They're worried about health. A lot of people, when they are worried about their own health, just shut down. Mm -hmm. I've talked about my father-in-law, who is now dead, and he used to say when we would bring anything you would bring up in the house that was uncomfortable, that he deemed uncomfortable, he would say, that is not to be discussed in a Victorian household. That was his line. Yeah, WTF. Yeah. So, <laughs> the first time you heard that, I just wish I'd seen a video of your facial expression. Yeah, well, you could imagine, probably like cocked my head like a pug. Like, what? <laughs> Wait, Victorian? I don't get it. What are you talking about? it became very clear that there were many, many, many things that were on that list. The only thing is he at least admitted, we don't talk about this. That's actually even more information than other people who have this pattern share. Yes, except that there were only like three things we were allowed to talk about. What were they? It was uh, animal sightings, 
the weather, <laughs> and there was a, a ski mountain that they live near. And we were allowed to talk about sort of who was buying the ski mountain, but that actually got removed from the list later on. So it became animal sightings and the weather. And then the weather started getting controversial too. So then it really just became like what animal you saw. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a very limited conversation. I would just sit there and keep my mouth shut. So you can imagine, right? So I'm married to somebody who was raised, we are not going to discuss this in a Victorian household. And I think that this is definitely more of a male thing than a female thing, is that you're not allowed to talk about things. Then when you're anxious about something, when you're upset about something, when you're worried about something, when something makes you uncomfortable that needs to be discussed, you go inside and you do it inside. And speaking of where that turns around in a family, you can hear both parents say, don't upset your father. Mm-hmm. Don't upset your mother. We're not going to talk about this because it's going to upset the other parent. So one parent's always trying to stifle conversation that will upset the other one too. All right. So chew on that while we take a little break. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. You know, when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you, well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship and that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique, it's personal, and it lasts forever. I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether you're song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care, start your song now to lock in one of Song Finch's top artists. 
Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. Well, that's one of the dynamics that happens in a marriage is that if you've got somebody who you know that there are certain things you're not supposed to talk about or certain things you can't talk about or certain things that will trigger somebody or make somebody feel anxious or make somebody whatever, then you work to help it not come up. We can't talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. Don't bring that up, right? That happens a lot. And the connection between avoidance and inner isolation, I think, is important to bring up because when you're going inside and you're doing your anxiety inside, you're doing all of this inside, you're not avoiding it. What you're avoiding is conversations with other people. You're avoiding doing certain activities. You're avoiding interaction outside of yourself, but you are fully immersed in what you're doing on the inside. Some people find ways, of course, to avoid feeling. They self-medicate, they keep themselves distracted, they become workaholics. But a lot of the time, when you are inside, you are not avoiding the issues, you're just churning them up in a way that excludes other people and excludes the help that maybe you should get. I mean, that's one of the things I talk about with inner isolation is that when people don't talk about it, it doesn't get normalized. I can't tell you how many times somebody's been in my office and they'll say, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody before. And then they tell me and I'm like, it's okay. There it is. Like, of course you felt that way. That was awful. That's what Fred Rogers said. We speak the unspeakable and it becomes speakable. Right. And then it becomes manageable. And then it becomes manageable. And then it becomes shared. Right. Right. I mean, that's the whole thing of like not talking about what you're worried about or not talking about what's going on inside of you disconnects you in a way that makes it so much bigger inside of you. It happens all the time in my office. It happens with little kids and it happens with adults. It happens in marriages. Because you feel like you can't talk about it, but you're still inside feeling it, thinking it, living it. You're just doing it by yourself. So what I would love to talk about too is catastrophizing. Mm. This actually is very relevant in dating as much as it is in marriage. And I know I told you to watch this and I know you probably didn't because it's beneath you, but second (laughs) season of Love is Blind... It's not beneath me. If you know what I watched on TV, it is not beneath me. This was somewhat fascinating to me because this poor woman, and honestly, I hope someone who knows her has her listen to this, but this poor woman named Danielle clearly suffers from a generalized anxiety disorder, but she is a catastrophizer who just fears how could this partner really like me or want to be with Mm -hmm. me. And so she worst case scenarios all the time. Poor sweet girl. No one has ever helped her frame this from the place of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And if you're a catastrophizer, what happens, because I am one, Mm -hmm. is that you (gasps) often think that these worst case scenarios might be an inner voice that knows something. 
Yes. And so you start believing like, is this intuition? Yes. Because this could really happen or is this anxiety? And so it's very easy to confuse the two. I will tell you that when you are a catastrophizer and you're dating or you're married, it's so easy to say something's wrong. Mm. Something is wrong. So those kinds of questions come from catastrophizers in a marriage. Such a good thing you bring up because when you talk about doubt, what people will say is she's so insecure or he's so insecure or they're so needy, right? So that's the way. We don't talk about it in terms of anxiety. We say, oh God, she's so insecure. She's so needy. And there's where you get the reassurance. But if you're a catastrophizer, remember you're going to the worst case scenario and remember anxiety is a doubt factory. So when you say, do you still love me? Is there something wrong? Are you going to leave me? All of that stuff comes up. It gets put into this category of jealousy, insecurity, and neediness, but not really talked about in terms of catastrophizing anxiety. Again, I mean, I know people probably get sick of me saying this, but the content doesn't matter. It's really about looking at the process. And so if we were talking to this woman, Danielle, even before she was in a relationship, she probably did this in other areas of her life too. Of course. Did the teacher like what she did? She's seeking reassurance all the time. Seeking certainty in a relationship is anxiety. Yes. Seeking certainty in a relationship is anxiety, but we don't call it that. Now let's flip it and look at it from sort of the male perspective, right? Then it becomes that control, like I'm a jealous controller. I had a client and he was married to a woman. They ended up getting divorced. Then they got back together. So second time around, he was so anxious that she was going to leave him again that he started acting like a crazy person. He would go to her place of work and see whose car was parked next to her car because he thought that maybe that meant they were having a relationship. He was so incredibly paranoid and suspicious and so afraid that she was going to leave him. And of course... That drove her crazy. And she was like, I cannot be in a relationship with you. You don't trust me. It wasn't about her. Exactly. I've been married 18 years now. And over the course of time, especially in the last few years because of this podcast, I've gotten better and better where, I mean, I don't think my husband's ever said to me, hey, are we okay? I confess it's something that I would ask over the years. I don't ask it anymore mm -hmm. because I now am aware that this is an anxiety pattern that I have and it's how worry shows up. It's not based on anything in our relationship. It's just yeah. easy for me to go there if I've got some anxiety in me that comes out. And this is a way that it would come out. Yeah. You know, I told you we could do a whole episode on Love is Blind, right? Or any of these dating shows. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just like, let's say this one more time. We have these cultural norms of someone who is a needy or insecure dater and person in relationships. And in fact, this isn't neediness or insecurity. This is anxiety. Right. There was a failed marriage in my family where the husband, this was a, a generation ago, the husband would not allow the wife who was uh, still in college. He only allowed her to take home economics courses so there would be no men in her class. Yeah. yeah, she divorced him. 
And people be like, oh, he's just a jealous type or whatever. It's like, no, he is catastrophizing that someone is going to do this. And here's the thing is that people hear that and they'll say, well, maybe there is a reason why she would want to date somebody else. And we give credit to an anxious pattern sometimes when there is nothing there. Right. Now, let me also just put the caveat in here, too, is that there are spouses that are incredibly controlling and abusive. Yes. So my colleague, his name is Terry Real, and he does a lot of couples work with these kind of men, like abusive, controlling men. And he really works to have them understand this pattern. And I bet if I talked to Terry, he would say like a lot of it does have to do with fear and their own abuse and all that kind of stuff, right? So not every guy who's like a controlling asshole is like this nervous, anxious person. There's, there are some that are just like, it's awful. Terry would have a much more, I mean, he goes right at it, which is really interesting. He's got a new book coming out. Yeah. I think the bigger point is that sometimes having the capability of looking at a marital dynamic through the lens of anxiety, where you try and manage it, perhaps that is a way to alleviate this friction point. And if not, of course, then there are other things going on. Right, right. I would say it's not so much the controlling behavior that I really pay attention to through the anxiety lens as the needy, insecure behavior. Like I need constant reassurance. So it's sort of like when we're talking about tracking and we're going to do an episode on tracking, but partners needing to know where other partners are. Like we talk a lot about tracking between parents and children, but what about tracking between partners, grown people needing to know exactly where somebody is? They're so nervous about that. They're so worried about that. They're so scared that they're going to lose this person in some way. That's all of that anxiety, all that fear, all that doubt. It is such a doubt factory. If you think about anxiety as a doubt factory, it really explains a lot. I think it's also very helpful if there are listeners who, if what I'm saying resonates with them, it's very helpful when you can create a catastrophic scenario very quickly and in full color. Mm -hmm. It's also very helpful to stop that catastrophic movie and roll your eyes at it. And then just think about the concept of trust in your relationship and how good you feel about trust. Mm -hmm. And if you feel good about the trust, then you really know also this is just a stupid anxiety movie. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's really important, too, to recognize that it may be absolutely impacting your relationship. But if you're, you know, if you're catastrophic, you're filled with doubt, if you need a lot of reassurance, pay attention to where it shows up in other areas of your life. Does it show up in your professional life? Does it show up in your friendships? Does it show up in other family relationships with your own parents? This is a process, right? So look at the pattern, look at the bigger pattern and see how it shows up in your relationship. Well, that's something to think about while we take a little break. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. 
And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. I had another client where the woman was convinced that her husband was having an affair. This was a pattern she had of getting stuck on something and being catastrophic about it and then looking for the evidence to support this horrible thing that was going to happen. And she basically like was close to extracting a false confession out of this guy because he was constantly being accused. Well, and let's just stop and say, when you are in a state of anxiety, you are not capable of authentic connection. That's right. So if you are always denying yourself and your partner of authentic connection because you're coming at them in a state of anxiety, that's going to be very tough on a relationship. And that may in fact be why the relationship ends up being doomed Mm -hmm. because the partners aren't getting their emotional needs met and they're lonely in a relationship. So it's not that it's a self-predicting prophecy There is a logical series of events happening that make that the outcome. Yeah, yeah. When you look at anxiety in general, I also say this all the time, it's not rational. So people will say to me, well, I don't understand my child. She's like terrified to go into a store to pick up her glasses or she has to run in and go pick up this, but she'll get up on stage and she'll sing in front of all these people. And I don't understand. I say, it's not rational. It's not rational. So what happens when you've got this dynamic in a relationship is that the person who's not the anxious one or the person who's not engaging in this doubt, this reassurance, this neediness, 
is trying to give rational information as to why that's not true. So they get caught in this pattern of just offering more and more evidence. And it says like, look at my phone or this or this or this. There's nothing going on. And no amount of rational evidence undoes this. That's why there's that part of cognitive behavioral therapy where it says, what's the evidence to support that belief? And I always say, well, that's a great question to ask, except it's very quickly followed by the yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. When you're in this dynamic with somebody, you're trying to alleviate their anxiety by providing more and more evidence, by providing reassurance, by providing rational thought. Well, how could you think I would be doing this? I told you I was going here. Well, track me on my phone. Pay attention. It doesn't work because it is an internally generated state of uncertainty, of doubt, of insecurity that is virtually immune to rational information. That's the way this thing works. Mm. And think of how dangerous that becomes in the context of relationships. That's right. Yeah. Or tricky. Yeah, tricky. You're always having to prove something and it is a bottomless pit. If you have a little anxious child that is afraid of thunderstorms or that is afraid of getting stung by a bee or that is afraid of people being mean to her, this idea that we're just going to keep giving information, we're going to reassure. I say all the time, it doesn't work. The same thing goes if you are an adult in a relationship and somebody is equally in need of constant reassurance, you can never fill that bucket. And then you get into those roles of over and over and over again, right? It just doesn't work. If you can step back and look at it as this pattern of just this doubt factory, of this catastrophizing, of this need for certainty, it can really help you untangle this dynamic that happens in relationships all the time. You know, it's another one. You just said it. Let's talk about another anxiety response that can really put a shadow on a marriage. Rigidity. Mm-hmm. Yep. That comes across as controlling, of course, right? And this shows up in interesting ways too, like where you go. Robin is unbelievable. Like the places she goes and the things she does, I'm always like, what? I mean, it's just amazing what she does. But if she had a partner who refused to travel, if she had a partner that was terrified to fly, if she had a partner that was germ phobic and wouldn't go into hotel rooms, boy, that would put a really big cramp on Robin's style. I'm telling you. Right? Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've had clients who have a lot of anxiety about germs, a lot of anxiety about food. If you have a partner that's a really picky eater, it is amazing how that impacts a relationship because you can't go out to dinner with people. You get invited to a party. You won't go and eat the food. I mean, it is absolutely limiting what you can do when your anxiety makes you rigid. And then when it makes you rigid in a way of there are things that have to be done a certain way, that gets in the way. Like, well, I can't go and do that thing because I haven't done my run today, or we can't leave the house unless the house is perfect. It comes up over and over and over again. Okay. So you have a partner who is like this and the rigidity and the lack of flexibility is definitely there. Mm -hmm. Again, people might just say, well, that's their personality. That's just who they are. And this is something that I've just normalized and we have to work around it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this is how toxic family cultures, clearly, right. this is like an example of that. 
But again, if you think of this from the lens of anxiety, there's some hope. Yeah. And the hope is that when people can recognize this and when we can normalize it, not as this controlling behavior, this rigid behavior is like, oh, this is just what we have to do. But if you can normalize it like, yeah, a lot of people have anxiety and this is how a lot of people cope. This is what people do to try and deal with it. And the reason they do it is because it's somewhat successful. Because when you avoid things, you feel better. In the short term. In the short term. Yep. In the short term. And again, like there are some people that are just going to say, look, he's rigid about this, or he only likes to go to these certain restaurants. But other than that, I mean, he's this and this and this, or she won't go across bridges. And so fine, we won't go across bridges. And you decide that that's the deal you're going to make in your relationship. And that's something that you accept. Of course, people do that. People do that all the time. I think that it's better for your relationship and your connection if people can just acknowledge where they get stuck and where their rigidity is. Say somebody only wants to go to certain restaurants and they say, no, I'm not going to that restaurant. That place is terrible. No, we're not going there. And they just set up all these rules about why they can't go to the other places and it doesn't really make sense. But if they say, you know what? I've got this thing, like I feel like I have to know what's on the menu and I know I know I get so rigid about it and I wish I didn't do this, then you're talking about what's really going on. You're talking about what's really happening. And that feels very different in a relationship. That's very connecting. Mm-hmm. You're being authentic. You're being vulnerable. That's right. And you were saying, I'm owning this. This is what's going on with me. What do you think? What can we do? Yeah. You can actually get very close in a marriage by being vulnerable and not being defensive and agreeing to work on your stuff together. That's right. A very obvious example of this is with people who are in recovery. So if you've got somebody who's dealing with their addiction issues and that person is denying it, that person is saying, well, you get upset that I drink seven beers a night. You know, my friend Joe, he drinks 12 beers a night. Or you think it's bad that I just smoke pot every day? Everybody smokes pot every day and you're just a prude and you need to, right? That is so incredibly difficult to deal with. But if somebody says, I've got a problem with this and I need help getting sober, and then they do get sober, and even if they relapse, but there's a lot of discussion about it, and if you're working on it together as a couple... I know a lot of couples that one of them is in recovery and they're open about it and you can be very compassionate with somebody who's dealing with that. It's the denial of it that really is so corrosive in a relationship. And I think probably many people can relate to that in all sorts of things. Like if somebody is going through a period of depression, the more you talk about it and the more you look at the pattern and the more you seek help, the easier it is for everybody else to support you and help you. The more you deny it, the more you close down about it, the more you get defensive about it, the less people are really willing to deal with it. So to wrap up this episode, I think the real point that you would say is that if you're listening to this on a regular basis because you're curious about the anxiety patterns in your kids or even yourself, look at your marriage too. Look at these Mm -hmm. very common, predictable irrational ways that anxiety takes hold of everybody. Mm -hmm. And managing this anxiety could also be at the root of managing other relationship dynamics for the better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because anxiety has all these behaviors that go along with it. 
anxiety has all these patterns of behavior that we've talked about, like the rigidity, the control, the doubt, the insecurity, the catastrophizing, the shutting down. All of those things are part of somebody not really being able to say, gosh, I get anxious about this, or this is what my worry does. And so as a person in a relationship, all you see is the behaviors. All you see is the result of it. Own your own shit, right? If it's your patterns of behavior. But if your partner has these patterns of behavior, and then you start talking about them more openly, it is hugely, hugely helpful. The denial of it, the dismissal of it, the not wanting to talk about it part of it, that's what often leads to relationships falling apart. What do you say to the listeners who say, I could never have a constructive conversation with my partner about this? He or she completely shuts down. Mm -hmm. I'll get nowhere. So that this episode has been depressing for them instead of hopeful. What do you say to them? Well, I mean, if you're in that situation, then this will be depressing because you're relating to everything that I'm saying and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm stuck in this. Lynn's talking about these disconnection patterns and we've got them. The one piece of advice I would give if you've tried to have conversations and it always turns into a fight or this or that is write them a letter. And I'm serious about this. Sit down and write the most open, caring, thoughtful letter you can give it to them and say, I want you to read this. This is coming from my heart. I am bearing my soul to you and let them read it. Give them time to read it and see if that opens a door to better conversation. Because oftentimes when people have time to take in the information, you have time to construct something so that you're not saying things you regret. Your tone is what you want it to be. So that can be helpful. And then people have time to read it and to absorb it the defensiveness that they'll feel at the beginning, sometimes if they can read it a few times and take some time, then you can have a conversation. In my life experience that has been extremely effective in letters or these conversations is be upfront with your objective, which is I am sharing this information very uncomfortably because I want nothing more than to feel closer to you. Fabulous. Yeah, because that's the point. That's why you're taking that risk. And you can even say, this feels risky to me, but it's worth it for me to take this risk because I love you that much and I care about you and I care about our family. So I'm going to take this risk. You've got to be vulnerable. Whatever conversation you have or whatever letter you write, you've got to say, this is what's going on. This is how I'm experiencing this. This is what I'm worried about. And the goal is to try and open this up and make us more connected, for sure. You know, people say, like, relationships aren't supposed to be such hard work. Uh, BS. Yeah, I think they are hard work. I just think that we want it to be productive work and we want it to be satisfying work, but it's work. Because you've got to think about it. You've got to maintain it. Your relationships shouldn't be less work than your garden. Your relationships shouldn't be less work than doing your taxes, right? It's work. It's maintenance. We've got to pay attention to it. But if anxiety is in your relationship, like a Camilla Parker Bowles example yeah. like you gave, <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you've got a third energy that's making things confrontational, the mm -hmm. work should be as a team. That's right. The healthiest relationships, people own their own stuff. 
they can talk about it, and then they Mm -hmm. can support each other. And that takes some time to get to. That's not easy to do either. Yeah. And remember, the problem with Camilla is that Charles was totally denying that Camilla was even a part of it for a while. So there was that denial. Robin and I always say that we should do a podcast called As If We Know Them, talking about the royal family. (laughs) Because we don't, but we all think we do. Let me just finish this by saying, like, I'm giving you a pep talk, parents. Like, if you're listening to this, I want to say to you, it's okay for you to let your kids be bored. It's okay for you to take care of yourself. It's okay for you to pay attention to how your anxiety is causing you, like Robin said, to, to try and optimize everything. It's okay for you to step back from this and take care of what you need and what you want and to not worry so much about making everything perfect. I'm telling you that right now. I'm giving you that message. It is so important for you to pay attention to your relationship. It's so important for you to work as a team. This is your validation that if you pay attention to your patterns, if you pay attention to how your anxiety steps in, it's going to impact your kids in amazing ways. And just a reminder to listeners you know, you hear this and you say, okay, we need some work. Well, our retreats are one opportunity for you to get to work with Lynn. And the family retreat that we have in the fall, there are four more slots left for people who want to work with Lynn, not only in the workshops, but work privately with Lynn. And so what that means is that you have an opportunity to talk with Lynn for a pre-retreat phone call, a post-retreat phone call, and then an additional hour privately with your family. So these retreats and these private consultations are just great ways to sort of get the ball rolling so that you can really look at your patterns and really interrupt them. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.